Welcome everyone. I'm very happy and proud to present Gary Geddes to you today, who's going to um, speak to us about justice and healing in Africa. And Gary is a Canadian poet and writer who has written over 35 books, including books of poetry, fiction, non-fiction and drama, which have been translated in, into five languages. And he's, he has also received many awards for his work, including the Lieutenant Governor's Award for Literary Excellence and the E.J. Pratt Medal. And today Gary is going to talk to us about his much-anticipated book, Drink the Bitter Root, A Search for Justice and Healing in Africa. And this book is based on his drama and human rights interviews with victims of violence, uh, of Rwanda, Uganda, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Ethiopia, and Somaliland. So thank you very much for coming, and I'm going now to hand over to Gary. Thanks for coming as well, Gary. <laughs> thank you, Leila, and thank you all for inviting me. I'm a non-specialist. I'm a poet sometimes masquerading as a non-fiction writer and historian. My interest in Africa goes back a long way. I did a PhD on Joseph Conrad, and I know his assessment of the Belgian Congo, called it the vilest scramble for loot ever to disfigure the history of human consciousness. Uh, and a lifetime of listening to the news uh, of all of the things happening in Africa. So I have a relative, relatively long history in gathering information about Africa, but I uh, have an appalling ignorance still. And it was this ignorance that made me so ashamed of myself, uh, as well as living off the avails of the third world, as we do in Canada and the West, that I decided I had to, before it was too late, I had to learn a little bit more, and that sent me to Africa. But there was something uh, that really tripped the switch, and that was something we call in Canada the Somalia Affair. The Canadian Airborne Regiment was sent to Somalia uh, as a backup for the American relief exercise, which turned into the disastrous Black Hawk Down. Canadians were in Belladwane in Somalia, about 100 and some miles north northwest of Mogadishu. They were supposed to be a stabilizing force in the community. Uh, unfortunately, there were racist, a strong racist element in the military in Canada. And it was uh, quickly manifest in Bella Duane. They lured, well, they had a, they, they, they had a, a senior officer who, who said, if you can imagine, the first person to kill a nigger gets a case of champagne. And, and that, is, that is something, uh, just an indication of the mentality of this, this, this regiment. Not to say there weren't a lot of good people in that regiment, but this was a strong racist element. Anyway, it didn't take long for someone to try to claim that champagne. They lured a young Somali named Shadeen Abukar Aron into the compound and systematically tortured him to death. The only reason we got to know about this in Canada, because mil the military is very good at, in any country at, at uh, covering up its uh, atrocities, was that a Major Barry Armstrong, a medical doctor, sent an email to his wife and said, there's going to be a military cover-up. There's been a murder here, and we need to get it to the press. So she sent it to the Canadian press. 
and the, sh the shit hit the fan. Uh, the government went into protection mode. Uh, we found there were hazing vid videos, there were uh, photographs of the, uh, the young Shadane being tortured and sh photographs of him dead that were circulating. And uh, what happened very shortly after was that the Canadian Airborne Regiment was, was uh, abolished. It was uh, disbanded. And you can tell, and this doesn't happen in military history very often, so you can tell that there were some very serious implications for the government. So they were covering their backsides by disbanding the regiment. But they did set up a royal commission to study it. Unfortunately, at the moment when the officers who were involved were likely to be uh, brought to the stand, the royal commission was suspended on grounds that it was too expensive to carry on any longer. Well, that was totally uh, facetious or, or, or a ridiculous argument. Anyway, I, I was appalled by the obstruction of justice in this case and also by the response of ordinary Canadians who, who like to have, to have a myth of, we have a myth of innocence. We like to think of ourselves as number one immigrant destination and uh, we hang on Lester B. Pearson's coattails for his Nobel Peace Prize and we pretend that we're a peaceful nation. That's to forget the extermination and genocide of the First Nations people, the incarceration of the Japanese Canadians, the Chinese head tax, the turning away of a shipload of Sikhs, and the turning away of the ship St. Louis full of Jews fleeing the disasters in the Second War. So Canada has a real racist history to, to match almost any country, and, uh, but people don't know about it. They don't hear about it in schools, and there's a lot of attempt to cover it up. But we have a political scientist named Herschel Hardin who put his finger on it a long time ago. He said, creating a simulacrum of innocence is only a way colonials have of avoiding their condition. And I've been thinking about and working in areas of human rights all my life, in Chile and in West Bank and Israel and in other parts of the world. And uh, I was appalled by the Canadian response to this, not just the government response, but the ordinary persons and journalists' response. They wanted to dismiss this as a case of a few bad apples. So I began to read about uh, Somalia and uh, I became so interested that I started to read more and more and more and more widely. And I began to read all across Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, just that small belt that included the, the countries that Leila mentioned, Democratic Republic of Congo, Rwanda, Uganda, Ethiopia, and Somaliland. Unlike Sarah Palin and George Bush, I knew that Africa was not a country, and that I could, <laughs> that I could not look at all those, study all those countries because of lack of time and a short life and, and even less money. So I made the decision to make that, make my way across from Congo to Somaliland. I decided first I would go to the International Criminal Court. I wanted to 
I was going to be interest, uh, interviewing trauma victims, so I wanted to get some sense of how victims on the ground relate to international uh, high-level high cases at, at the international court. So I made my way over there. I wanted to ask them whether the court with its slow-moving mo slow wheels and enormous expenses was really working. Why were, there no, why were there only Africans before the court at that time in 2008? Where was George Bush, Donald Rumsfeld, maybe Tony Blair and a couple of Canadian politicians? Where were they? Why were there no white people being uh, charged at that point? And uh, I, I also wanted to know what difference it would make if Thomas Lubanga Dailo or uh, uh, Joseph Coney spent the last part of their lives uh, in a remote suburb of The Hague in a cell with a posh cell with a 27 inch television, music lessons, three good meals a day, ping pong in the afternoon with Charles Taylor and Radovan Karadzic. When the victim of this person was suffering humiliation, pain, rejection from the family, PTSD, and going to bed hungry every night. So I proceeded to the court and I started to ask these questions. And there was a lot of reluctance to talk about, to, to address these issues. One person assured me that it was working wonderfully, that there were no dictators and bullies in the world going to bed without uh, going to bed nervous. They were all, none of them were getting a good night's sleep, she said. And this just is not true, of course. Uh, and I asked a, a number of other impertinent questions and didn't really get any good answers because they were all believers in the international court. Uh, nobody wanted to talk about winner's justice, the Nuremberg trial, uh, accusations of the Nuremberg trials, or the one and a half million German POWs who were allowed to starve to death after the war, at the end of the war. So, but I did have one surprising and serendipitous, and serendipitous encounter at the International Criminal Court. I met a young guide named Patrick, a French national, who showed me around the premises of the ICC. And I said to Patrick, what is the most impressive thing that ever happened to you at the court? Without hesitating, he said, it was meeting the French writer and Holocaust survivor, Simon Veil. I said, why was that? And surely not because she was famous. He said, not at all. He said she was very skeptical about international justice, but she had a great passion for victims. And because the International Criminal Court had a victims reparations program, she was willing to back it, to throw in her support. So I went away with that little gem in my head, and I set off for Rwanda and Uganda initially. I knew that it was going to be a difficult time. Why would people who had suffered this kind of trauma be willing or want to tell, tell me about it? A, a tall, white, gangly foreigner with a camera and a notebook and no credentials, really, uh, that would endear me to them. I knew something would have to happen. Before I left, I found a quotation in the news, tr newspaper, the Toronto Globe and Mail, 
by Jean Vanier, a great Canadian humanitarian and a organizer and founder of the Larch Institute, working with mentally challenged people in Europe and Canada. And he had said, because we live in a, an atmosphere of power and strength, we develop attitudes of hardness and invulnerability. But he said it's vulnerability that brings people together. And that trip to switch, it reminded me of something Lao Tzu said, the famous Chinese philosopher. He said, we must speak to the wound in each other. And I took these two thoughts with me to Rwanda, and they were tremendously helpful. My first visit was to a place called the Village of Hope outside Kigali. And a friend of mine, Peggy Frank, in Victoria in Canada, had gone to Africa and contact, contracted AIDS when she was young. And she'd almost died, but the cocktails had kept her alive. And in gratitude for many things for her being alive, she decided to start an organization called Positively Africa for working with women who were infected with AIDS during the genocide. And she told me a story that just knocked my socks off. She said she went with her friend Emerita into Emerita's village. And people who hadn't seen her for a while gave Emerita these huge hugs. And it was wonderful to watch. She was very much loved by her community. But there were a few people along the way that she just nodded to, and, and, and there was no, no affection whatsoever. In fact, it was, it was not just an absence of affection, there was something else. Peggy said, Emerita, afterwards, who were those people that you didn't greet in the same way? She said, those were the people that killed my family. And so this is part of the drama of Rwanda. There are all these people living side by side, cheek to jowl with their with perpetrators who've injured them and killed their families. And Rwanda has had an enormously difficult time dealing with this. One of their efforts was to set up the Gachacha courts. You probably know about that already. They had 100, after 10 years after the genocide, they still had 120,000 people in jail waiting for uh, their day in court, many of whom would die if things continued the way they were. And they'd only uh, done, I think they'd only gone through 7,000 cases in 10 years, so it was hopeless. And so they set up this grassroots uh, uh, justice system. And uh, it was fraught with so many difficulties. After one year, they discovered that 40,000 of the 169,000 judges were complicit in the genocide, and they had to eliminate, get rid of them, and replace them with other people. And most of them had little education and uh, very, very little chance of doing a, a decent job. But I, I want to jump away from that to what happened at the Village of Hope. I was invited into a little 10-foot square room about the size of this space here. And there were four women sitting, weaving baskets. And I was introduced by Panina, the head of the Village of Hope. And I, I didn't know what I was going to say. I just, I said, I've, to begin with, 
as a man, knowing what's happened to you, I'm ashamed. As a human being, I'm ashamed, but as a man, I'm especially ashamed because all these women had been raped and infected with HIV. And they didn't have it, there was no eye contact at all. I started to flounder along and I, I, I told them about my own dysfunctional childhood. I said, my mother died when she was 35 and I was seven, and uh, my father was an alcoholic. And they talked about the poor circumstances we lived in, and still no eye contact with anybody. And uh, I'm going to lose this round to begin with. And uh, then I shifted and I said uh, that I'd gone to Chile during the Pinochet dictatorship, and I'd interviewed families of the disappeared and the politically executed, and the women there had graciously shared their stories with me because they knew that I would take them out and write about them. I thought that might trip a switch. Still nothing. I just, I think I looked as if I would, I'd sucked a lemon by that time. And uh, I was just about to apologize. I'm sorry I wasted your time. When this woman looked right at me, the youngest of the group, she said, I can identify with what you said about the loss of your mother. My mother was hit by a bus when I was a child, an infant, and I, I never knew, I don't even know what she looked like. And then the floodgate opened and she told me her whole story, which I won't go into, which was a horrific story. Days later, days later the other women told me their story and I was interested to know none of them were, none of them were interested in talking about justice. They were only interested in their own healing. And uh, I guess <clears throat> the anecdote that is most powerful from that brief time in Kigali was a woman I met named Angelique. I met her through <clears throat> a, a journalist named Sam Nkurunziza, who was a med student from Uganda who was back. He was a Tutsi, he was back doing newspaper work for the summer to earn some money. He'd spotted me, which wasn't difficult. I was the only person, a white person in a crowd of 10,000 protesting the arrest of Rose Kabuya by the German government, who passed him, her on to the French. So Sam found me, and, and after a few drinks and lots of talk, he said, I want you to meet my friend Angelique. She has a story. And so he arranged, he arranged for her to meet us. He was late and she was angry with him. But she was quite vivacious and, and lovely and powerful, and then he's, he hadn't told her why he wanted her to meet me, the, the bum. He should have done that, but he didn't. He said, I want you to tell Gary your story. And she just about slugged him. She didn't want to tell anybody her story. Eventually she said, if you put away your tape recorder, I'll, I'll try to tell you my story. But her voice went down about two octaves in, in volume. Just incredibly, it was just a whisper. She started to tell the story. She'd been, she'd been kidnapped by the bodyguard of the Hutu, uh, somebody in the Hutu government, uh, and he and his friends had raped her and several other girls for three months straight. And then the RPF invaded, and the battle began, and the rapist and kidnapper was killed. 
So she and the other girls escaped over the border into Goma, into Congo. And when the RPF victory was uh, declared, she and, uh, and some of her friends returned to Kigali, thinking they would be safe finally. Well, she was immediately arrested. A man had accused her of killing his, his two children. And she knew that these two children, they'd, they'd been part of the group fleeing to Congo and they had died of dysentery. But she was thrown into jail without a trial. She spent 12 years in prison in Kigali for something she didn't do. After 12 years, the man that had accused her of killing his children, here's a couple of chairs, hop up here. After 12 years, the man that had accused her of killing his children came to her and through the court, not through the courts, but through the, the, the legal system and said, I was mistaken. The person that told me you had killed my children was somebody who wanted your parents' property. He'd lied. So she was released and I, I interviewed her. She'd been 12 years in jail for nothing. And I was interested to know what she did with her anger and what she wanted in terms of justice. And she ignored the question about justice yet again. She said, I had to let go of my anger. It would, I, I'd suffered too long from it. It would have killed me. <clears throat> so she'd made this intellectual decision to put her anger aside. But as she was saying that, I hadn't mentioned earlier that one of the rapists had stabbed her in the ribs, just as a, just as a, a, a another perverted gesture. Twelve years later, as she was telling me that she'd put her anger aside, I could see her right hand moving over to the left side of her body where that wound was and holding it. So the mind remembers, the, the, the mind wants to forget, but the body remembers. <clears throat> I moved from Rwanda uh, to Uganda. I, I don't have time to tell you about my experiences at the Gachacha courts, but uh, if you're interested, you can check that out in the book someday. I went to, to Kampala, and my most successful interview was with a young lawyer named Joseph Manoba, who happened to be, very serendipitously, happened to be working for the Victims' Reparation Program for the ICC. And I said, Joseph, please tell me about justice on the ground in Uganda. He said, okay, I'll tell you about Mato Opat. It's a system of justice the Acholi people in the north have. If I kill your son, Joseph said, your family doesn't run after to kill me. They know that the cycle of revenge is endless and that what is that they can't get back their lost son and what needs to be restored is harmony in the community so my family comes to you to to hit joseph's family and brings eight cows one of them is slaughtered the blood from the cow is put in a large calabash it's mixed with a, a, a fermented corn liquor called quet and mixed with the ground-up roots of the opat tree. And the father of one group, uh, of the perpetrator and the father of the victim, 
get down on their knees facing each other and they put their face into that calabash and they drink the bitter root of reconciliation. And that is followed by the leaving a, a feast from the slaughtered cow and the leaving of the seven cows for a kind of never, never satisfactory consolation or reparation. And this was so intriguing to me. Just, there's so much sensible about that. Even with my kind of, with my training as an eye for an eye on Western justice, we hear of any tragedy, anything ghastly, and we, we want to strike out at the person that's done it rather than find out why this is being done and how, to, how properly to deal with it. And so <clears throat> Joseph wouldn't give me any more information about justice systems. I said, I want, to, uh, I want to talk to people who are working with victims in Uganda. And he said, you have to go to meet Victor Ochen in Gulu in northern Uganda. And I said, what is it about Victor? He said, well, he runs an organization called the Africa Youth Initiative Network, INET. And he'll tell you what you need to know. He was very quiet about this. He didn't want to give me too much information. And there are reasons for that. The, the, the ICC employees in Uganda are under constant threat of death. Uh, somebody let the name of uh, one of them working in Gulu out and that guy was killed shortly afterwards. And so they have to keep all of this stuff within the, you know, the right hands. And so I had no, no, no idea and desire to go to Gulu. I'd heard about the Lord's Resistance Army and all the travesties in northern Uganda and I was scared. I didn't want to go up there. But somehow or other I found myself on the phone the next morning talking to Victor O. Chen. And there was so much light and beauty and grace coming through that little message on the phone that I was, I was overcome. He said, Gary, I'm interviewing, uh, I'm working with 185 victims of Joseph Coney's mutilations and depredations. You must come and you can interview them all, <laughs> 185. And I had very little time to spend in Uganda. I, I got on the plane the next day, Eagle Air, and I ended up in Gulu, and was on the back of a motorcycle heading to St. Mary's Lachore Hospital in a very short amount of time. And I stopped in front of the gate, and an old priest came up to me, and this, uh, he said, after a bit of small talk, he said, I've been working here for 24 years, and the whole time I've been an, an engineer, repairing equipment 24-7. And I said, well, why did you do it? He said, well, I was never any good as a mechanic of souls. What else could I do? So then Victor arrived, and this beautiful young man, he took me immediately down to a ward where some of the victims were getting plastic, had been get, given plastic surgery for their wounds. Coney's victim, or Coney's uh, rebels, gangs, were mostly abducted children, turned into professional killers. Not by, not willingly. And these people would come into a village, and if you hid inside your hut, they would set the straw roof on fire, and the burning straw would fall in on you. And so there were people there with burns and cut throats. And I was down on my knees very shortly after, uh, just 
fighting back the tears, and this little child who has his ha hands burned off came and put the stumps of his arms around my neck to comfort me. And that was my introduction to Uganda. <coughs> and in the afternoon, I met a couple of women. I met Alice Adong, who had been going down the road in Goma with friends, and or in Gulu, and uh, she'd been a, a, a caught by the LRA, and she and her women friends were forced to crawl on their knees up a rocky slope till their legs were shredded to the bone, <coughs> while the men were being beaten to death down below. And, uh, she said they were dragged back down, and the, the line I will never forget, she said, I, 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 killed, I was forced to kill my husband while the children watched. Then I talked to Nancy, uh, and Nancy was quite an exceptional woman, and she really changed my thinking about the whole journey and why I was there and what, what was important. She spoke no English, so it was trans all translated by Victor O'Chan. And, and she explained to me, well, maybe it would be better if I just read you a few paragraphs from the book, because I think it's, uh, it's probably a little better in that form than, than off the cuff. Nancy took the plastic chair opposite me, Victor sitting off to one side. There was some small, awkward, some awkward small talk in which I offered a bit of personal hit history, the writing, the preoccupation with human rights. She'd been on the road when Coney's rebels attacked, Nancy said. They killed several of her companions, but because Nancy was pregnant, they cut off her ears, nose, and lips with a razor instead. Give these to the government soldiers, they jeered, closing her fingers over the bloody pulp. Unlike Evelyn and the others, Nancy did not take her eyes off me while she spoke. Her fiercely defiant expression seemed to say, I dare you to look at this face. Over the next hour, I plied her with questions. Waylaid is the word Victor likes to use, she said. I was waylaid on the road. Why? I never understood the logic. After they finished with me, I felt no pain. I was dead. You can imagine the rest. It was true. I could not stop imagining the things she left out. My husband, a government soldier posted elsewhere, couldn't bear to look at me. He has another wife now. We at Choli have a saying, a poor mother is always better than a rich father. To break the tension and cover up my own distress, I mentioned a favorite line in Sean O'Casey's play, Juno and the Peacock where after the young Irish woman named Mary has been made pregnant and de deserted by an English solicitor, she's comforted by her old mom with the words, and what's better than a father? Two mothers. Victor grinned and translated for Nancy. She nodded her head, then began to speak of the difficulties of making a living and looking after her daughter. Not just the problem of finding work, but dealing with the humiliation experienced by the young girl, who was teased and rejected by the other children. As Nancy talked, I could feel a tsunami of rage building up in me against Joseph Coney for all those murders, mutilations, lives destroyed. A bullet would be too good for him. He needed to suffer, slowly. I wanted to know how someone like Nancy could deal with her anger or recover from what had happened. 
Nancy thought for a moment, twisting the hem of her skirt in one hand. I had to let it go. I was hurt enough already. What about justice, I shouted, too troubled to keep my voice down. All the senseless deaths and violence I'd heard about here and in Rwanda had come flooding back. What should happen to the people who injured you and killed your friends? Justice? Nancy extended her hands in a questioning gesture. What's that? No one spoke in the silence that followed. She raised the fingers of one hand and gently touched her upper lip, which the Dutch plastic surgeons were trying to repair. Restorative surgery is what they call my operation, she said. That's what I want for Coney's people. Restoration. Bring them back. Integrate them into our community. They were mostly abducted boys. I could not hide my shock. I was shaking from the interview, unable to control my breathing. The late afternoon sun had slipped behind the trees in the compound, sharpening the colors. Noticing my discomfort, Nancy graciously changed the subject. Gary, she said, your first name sounds like the Acholi word for bicycle. I was grateful for the reprieve. With Victor translating, I replied that being mistaken for an Acholi bicycle wasn't so bad since my name in Japanese sounds like the word for diarrhea. They both laughed. What will you do now? I asked Nancy. I plant crops, mostly groundnuts, but what I want to do is go to school, study, to be a nurse. Uncertain how to end the conversation, I offered a foolish compliment on her dress, which was pink with a yellow collar. Will you let me take your photograph? Nancy looked at me for several long seconds before nodding her head. When her face appeared in the viewfinder, I closed both eyes for a second and released the shutter. I would return to that image often in the weeks that followed, pondering what it means to be human. Well, Nancy had so much grace and integrity. Here I was as a listener, an outsider, wanting retribution and revenge against Joseph Coney. And Nancy, the victim, was counseling forgiveness and restoration. And you know, I thought of something that Desmond Tutu once said. He said, restorative justice is more the norm in Africa than retribution in the Western notions of eye for an eye. And I didn't know that or particularly believe that until I met Nancy and I thought uh, that maybe he was right after all and that a lot of our approaches to issues of justice are based on some of the wrong models. As I was, the last night I was leaving Uganda, I stopped at the little hotel bar and restaurant and there was a goodbye party going on for Aaron Baines, who works for the Law and Justice NGO from the University of British Columbia in Gulu. And they were saying goodbye to Aaron because she was heading back to Canada. And got, they invited me to join them and I was sitting chatting with people about issues and what I'd learned and a woman turned, leaned across the tra table and said, you want to know uh, something uh, about justice? 
I said, of course. And she said, well, there's a young, a, a young uh, rebel from the Lord's Resistance Army who just turned 18. Yesterday was a child soldier, and today for a birthday present, he's an international, he's a war crimes uh, criminal. How, where's the justice in that, she said. And uh, all these questions were coming to me uh, from my interviews with Nancy and my talks with other people uh, that I couldn't answer. I just couldn't answer these questions, but it was a, a very a high learning curve for me. And it made me think of something that has sort of pushed me in a new direction since I came back to Canada, and that was restorative justice issues. In Canada, we have huge number, a disproportionate number of First Nations people in jails. And as the Americans have a disproportionate number of African Americans in jails, huge percentage. And you have to ask yourself, is the justice system serving these people uh, and serving the nation in, in, in general, building more prisons? Even Texas, uh, uh, when it went on a kind of building spree for private prisons, is discovering that they are a, a total disaster and are trying to move step back from some of these things. Well, the Canadian Prime Minister, Stephen Harper, who has no has nothing going good for him in my estimation. His dream is to make Canada good neighbors, brave warriors, and, uh, and he, he's building prisons uh, to beat the band. Uh, in spite of all of the statistics about crime going down in Canada, he's building more prisons. So I, I, my trip to Africa tripped another kind of switch for me, and that was to begin thinking about what was wrong with the way we deal with First Nations people in Canada. And so that's a, an area I'm moving into now. We have had what I think was a, a deliberate genocide going on for over a hundred years <coughs> to try to kill off the First Nations people. We actually sh sh exterminated with guns all the people in Newfoundland, the Baotic Indians. We put smallpox blankets into tribes and killed off 90% of some of them in six weeks. And then when there still seemed to be too many around for the colossal land grab that was the whole colonial system in Canada, we set up something as insidious as residential schools. And the word schools, of course, is a total uh, joke. They weren't schools, they were, some people called them death camps. One in, five, one in two children who entered those schools died of disease and beating, and they were raped. They were all church-run schools, Catholics, Anglicans, United Church, all good Christians that uh, did these things to the First Nations. So you ask yourself why the First Nations are dysfunctional and why they're in jails and why they They've been taken away from their families at age seven. They have, they have no sense of caring and love and affection. They've been beaten up for speaking their own language. So they go through that system to, to turn them into good little white people. And they go out and they raise families, but they have no role models, they have no knowledge, and they become abusers or they become alcoholics and dysfunctional. And so 
uh, I have to thank Africa for that. That's one of the many things I learned in my time there. Uh, and uh, I think it's probably a, a reasonable spot to stop now and to, to have some questions from you. <clears throat> Thanks so much. <laughs>